Amen. can think of no better theme to sing than the cross. As Isaac Watts said, when I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the cross of Saving the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. My all. What great words Isaac Watts penned. It's good to see you again this morning. I'm going to ask you if you've got a copy of God's Word to open up to Philippians chapter 2. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, either by a text or by your electronic device, there are copies of God's Word in the pews in front of you, and feel free to use those and take those with you if you need to today. We're going to look at one of the weightiest and most beautiful passages of Scripture in the New Testament today. And, and I would confess to you, as I did to some this morning that gathered with me to pray, that uh, we were mapping out preaching through Philippians several weeks ago and knew that this text was coming up on this day and, and have preached this text numerous times. But every time I come to this particular passage of Scripture, there's such a, a weight on this text it feels like that no matter what words I put on a paper or what words I attempt to say this morning, I will not be able to adequately do it justice. And so I, I've been praying all week that the Holy Spirit would speak His words to your heart this morning through this text. This is what we call a, a Christological text. And Christological texts are Christ-centered passages that God provides us most of the time within the New Testament which are given to us to teach us deep truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the Holy Spirit gives us passages like this because it's these passages which lift up our eyes from this world and lift our eyes to Jesus Christ to see Him in His fullness and glory. There are several passages such as this throughout the New Testament, John 1, 1 through 18, is one of those where John opens that passage by telling us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then from there begin to pen one of the greatest texts on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 13 through 23 is another weighty passage in which Paul begins that passage by telling us of Jesus that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then later on, he declares for us that he is not only the creator of all things, but all things were created through him and for him. And it's one of those weighty passages that we come to today in which Paul is exhorting you and I to pursue the mind of Jesus Christ. And in this passage today, he tells us that as Christ followers, as those who pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ and as those who claim to to be connected to Him through union with Him, that if that is true of us, that we should long to have a mind that thinks as Jesus thinks, that values what Jesus values, and that loves what Jesus loves. That as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to pursue a mindset that is like the mind of Jesus Christ. Many believe that the poetic structure of this passage this morning 
indicates that it is quite possibly an early hymn or confession of the first century church. Whatever the case, we are deeply indebted both to the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul for pinning these words and preserving them and providing them for us today. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. I don't normally do this, but I, I would like today to ask you, in, in honor of this passage and the weight of this passage, and in honor of the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me for just a second as we read this text? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I've already confessed to you and to this congregation this morning my complete inadequacy to preach this text any better than Paul wrote it. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us, not give me not only the words to speak, but get, give all of us this morning ears to hear. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? Before we dive into this text this morning to talk about what it means to have the mind of Christ, I want us to just go back for just a second and remember where we left off last week in our journey through Philippians. We started last week in Philippians chapter 127 where Paul encourages us and challenges us as Christians to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to do so by standing firm in the face of opposition and by pursuing unity with Christians, with our fellow believers, and devoting our lives to considering others better than ourselves and serving them. Last week we we ended with Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which I think are, are incredible passages for us to pursue, not only as individual Christians, but as a body of Christ. And so I want us to look at those verses again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, because they, they really provide the context for which Paul gives us verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's an incredible admonition and challenge that the Apostle Paul gives you and me that now that we have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ that as followers of Him that we should do nothing in our lives from a selfish ambition or a, or a personal conceit, but that we should, we should manifest and model humility. And that modeling humility as followers of Jesus comes by counting others more significant than ourselves, by putting others first. And we said, as it says in your notes there, that the the gospel calls us to gladly serve others with grace and humility. 
That if we understand the gospel, the very nature of the gospel is that it calls you and me to serve others and not to serve others begrudgingly, not to serve others just out of a sense of duty, but to serve others gladly and to do so with grace and humility. The gospel of Jesus reminds us that our lives as followers of Christ are not to be measured by our place on the organizational chart or the luxury of our corner office. That as followers of Jesus, we do not measure success by how many people serve under us to meet our needs, but we measure success in life by how well we serve the needs of other people. And here's the tension that we feel because we all understand the truth of this passage, but if we would just be real honest for a second, that passage is really hard to put into practice. It's really hard to understand with our head. It's really it's really easy for us to to say that's something I want to do, but when it comes to the practical day-to-day living out in this broken world, it's really hard to humble ourselves and actually consider the people that God brings into our path as more significant than ourselves. And the reality is that you and I cannot serve others the way that God calls us to in our own strength and left to our own spiritual resources. Because even in our best spiritual moments, even in those moments where we're at our best for Christ, our best moments are usually tainted with some sense of self-interest or ambition. I know that's true of me, so I'm assuming that it's probably true of you. That even in our best moments when we do our best works for the Lord, that, that there's still something in the indwelling sin nature inside of us that we continue to fight that wants to do right but do it for personal reasons rather than for the benefit of other people. For example... I may decide that in, in, in trying to put Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 into practice, that, that I decide that I'm going to devote some time in my life to feeding ho- others in a homeless shelter. I'm going to go find a homeless shelter where people don't have food, and I'm going I'm to go help make food and serve them. And while that's a very admirable thing, there's this challenge to want to, to take my picture of me serving food in the, in the line and put it on my social media so that others can see it. And then I go back and I check and see how many people like my picture, right? You say, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, you would. Because <laughs> you take this picture and then you go, well, only four people liked it. I don't understand. Or I may that decide that the Holy Spirit has... Has, has been leading me. I see, a, I see somebody out on the street or I see somebody in, in, the, in the community that doesn't have a, a clothes or, or doesn't have the, maybe they're out on the street corner by Walmart saying that they need food and so I decide I'm going to go buy a meal for them and I'm going to feed the needy family in my community. But when I go and take it to them, instead of them showing gratitude, sometimes they show entitlement. You ever had somebody when you try to do something good for them rather than than them receiving that gift with a sense of of gratitude and they they, they take it and they really don't say thank you? You ever had that happen before? Remember one time when I was in Louisiana, we we would go out on Thursday nights and pass out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, to to help tell people about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we would walk throughout the French Quarter handing out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and we came to a to a guy one day, he was probably in his mid to late 30s, he had a young little boy with him, and they were sitting there right there at the corner of Jackson Square, right across from the Cafe Du Monde. They were sitting there with a the sign saying, hungry, need food. 
in a little box that was out there. Me and my friend walked up there and we said, hey, um, can, we, uh, can we give you guys a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And he looked up at us and he said, I don't want your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Except he had something in that blank there. And, uh, and we said, well, your sign says that you're hungry. You need some food. And he said, I don't want your sandwich. You can take your sandwich and, and take a hike. And we said, well, can we give your little boy a sandwich at least? He said, he don't want your sandwich either. <laughs> and there was in that moment that tension that I felt uh, to, to wish ill will on that guy instead of understanding that, that I was just there to humbly serve his needs. And he was there because he had a sense of entitlement that people ought to help him out. I, I took less joy from serving in that moment because I was actually serving more for the gratitude that I was expecting to receive for him, from him. If I do something for someone in need so that I can feel better about myself and validate my Christian belief, then I'm really not doing it out of, out of a lack of selfish ambition. And what Paul is imploring us here as the church to do is to put aside our interest and genuinely come to a point in life as followers of Jesus Christ where when we look out at the world around us, we think, you know what, in light of all of them, they are better than me and my life's mission as a follower of Jesus Christ is to serve others. It's to put others first. And the ability to do that is only possible through two things. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the employment of the mind of Jesus Christ, which Paul tells us in Philippians 2.5. Our, our fallen sinful nature causes you and I, even after we've been redeemed and saved, it causes us to continue to fall back into pride, to fall back into self-service, to fall back into, into this tendency to want to do good for other people, but when it comes to really considering others better than ourselves and looking out to other people's interests above ours and displaying humble self-sacrifice, that's only possible when you and I pursue the mind of Jesus Christ. And it's only as we see the example of Jesus, which Paul gives us in verses 5-11, through 11, that we can fulfill verses 3-4. through 4. And what Paul is saying here is that in a New Testament church such as Central Park Baptist Church that is filled with followers of Jesus, that there should be a mindset, a determined value, a collective attitude in the church which mirrors the mind of Jesus when He was on earth. Because we are the body of Jesus Christ and He is our head. And therefore, the body of Jesus Christ should think as Christ thinks, should value what Christ values, should love what Christ loves. And so we need to have the mind of Jesus Christ. What is that mind? And I want us to see three preeminent truths this morning about the life and death of Jesus Christ and how they inspire you and I to demonstrate another's first attitude that He displayed. And so in your notes you'll see it there. The first thing that we see in verses 5-7 through seven is what I call the, the willing degradation of Jesus Christ. The willing dissension and degradation of Jesus Christ. Verses 5-7 through seven again. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. 
As Paul begins to describe for us the person of Jesus and His work, he does so by showing us the glorious, humble descent of Jesus Christ from the glories of heaven to the realities of earth. And as you read this, this text, there's a, there's a rhythmic flow to it as, as, as the Apostle Paul begins by giving us a picture of Jesus Christ in heaven, living in perfect fellowship with God the Father, perfect unity with God the Holy Spirit, being worshipped by hundreds of heavenly hosts, and then suddenly the passage takes a sudden downward trajectory as Christ determines to leave the glories of heaven to come down to earth and take on the form of a human. In this passage, Paul is demonstrating for us that Jesus Christ is the most humble man who ever lived. His entire life was one of eternal glory and power wrapped in meekness and humility. And while Jesus Christ is the rightful King of heaven, His entrance into this world didn't come through a lavish palace accompanied by a, a Roman decree. His entrance into the world likely was through a stable in an obscure village among common people. He didn't grow up in a a palace being served by servants. He grew up as the son of a common laborer, a carpenter, in a run-of-the-mill hick town like Nazareth. When he walked on the earth, he didn't do so with the royal robes of a nobleman, but he had the clothes of a common peasant. And Paul describes for us this descent of Christ from the eternal glories of heaven to the lowly existence on earth. No one in the history of Judaism. And they longed for the Messiah for 400 years. They looked to the prophecies and they longed for the day when the Messiah would come. And even though God had given hundreds of prophecies to tell who the Messiah would be, where he would be born, what kind of man he would be. No one in the history of Judaism would have come up with this kind of entrance of the Messiah into the world. No one would have have come up with a plan in which the Almighty Son of God would condescend to take on human flesh and to become a common servant. No one would describe the sovereign Lord of the universe becoming a common everyday slave. And we see three actions here that display for us the the willing degradation of Jesus Christ. The first of those is that He freely relinquished His personal rights. He freely relinquished His personal rights. Paul says, though He was in the form of God, He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word form here, form of God, is the Greek word morphe. And it doesn't speak necessarily to just external form or outward shape. It doesn't just mean that, that he, he looked like God in, in his external appearance when it says that, that he was in heaven and he had the form of God. It doesn't just mean that he kind of looked like God. The word morphe means that he shared the same essential attributes and inner nature of God. He was of the same essential nature. And all throughout history there have been attempts to subvert the deity of Jesus Christ. All throughout history, there have been attempts to to reconcile the ability that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. And so some people have said, well, maybe he wasn't God or maybe he became God later on and he, he didn't really have a divine nature even today. In our world, many will say that Jesus was a, a good man and that Jesus was a good moral teacher. 
But many in our world will fall short of proclaiming Him to be the Son of God. And yet that's what He was. He was and still is God from all eternity. And yet He did not let His divine prerogatives take precedent in His life. Paul says that while He was in the form of God, He did not consider that equality with God, that equal nature, something to be grasped. The word grasp is the picture of snatching and holding on to something and not being willing to give it up. It's what happens in my house when there's four boys and one slice of pizza left. (laughs) One wants to grasp it and is not quite willing to give it up to the others. It's also the picture of of maybe you're driving down the road and and suddenly your car is, is swept away in a flood and your children are in the back seat and you're grasping onto their children trying to get them out of the car. The Bible says that Jesus didn't hold on to those rights. He didn't, he didn't play the God card. Instead, when it came time to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption, Jesus came open-handed, freely relinquishing His rights to come into our world. And it's a reminder to us that if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we must have an open-hand mentality. If Jesus Christ was willing to freely relinquish His personal rights, then what makes you think that there's anything in the New Testament that calls us to do anything opposite of that? What makes you think that there's any time that we can play the rights card in the church? Not only did he freely relinquish his personal rights, but the Bible says he humbly took on the form of a servant. The Bible says in verse 7 that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. The word empty here means is the word kenosis. And it doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature. It doesn't mean that in order to come and be man that he decided to set aside his godhood. Or his deity. Jesus didn't cease to be God when he was born into this world. He was fully God. But he set aside some of the eternal qualities of the Godhead in order to become fully man and to take on our human limitations. He set aside some of the things that were rightfully his in being God. He willingly set them aside in order to empty himself of that. One commentator said he divested himself of position and prestige, not by subtracting his divine nature, but by adding humanity and becoming the God-man, fully God and fully man. And so while in his divine nature, Jesus was still the sovereign God of the universe, in his human nature, he had limited knowledge. He would confess that as the son, he didn't know all of the timeline of events that the father had plans for. He even said at one point in time that the son can't do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. That's that's the emptying of himself. That's the laying aside of some of the, the Godhead in order to take on human limitations. And Paul says that Jesus not only gave up his divine rights, but he also willingly took on the role of the lowest of society by taking on the form of a servant, a doulos, a slave, a bondservant. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, these, these words which resonate throughout the church, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the Son of God, and yet He lived His earthly existence in a simple life of helping others. 
healing the hurting, demonstrating compassion on the weak, being a friend of sinners. We see the ultimate servanthood of God on the night before He was crucified, when in that particular moment, when, when He was about to, to fully accomplish the plan of God, and, and, and when He would rightfully have the, the right to stand before His disciples and say, I'm about to go somewhere to accomplish salvation, and, and tonight you need to make this a big deal about me. Instead of saying that, the Bible says that he, he took off his outer garment, he, he wrapped himself in a towel, and he humbly knelt down and washed the feet of his followers. This is the servant nature of our Lord and Savior. And if Jesus Christ came to serve others instead of being served, then how can we as followers of him expect anything less of ourselves? How can we as followers of Him think that the church is about meeting our needs? The church is about making me happy. The church is about other people serving me. And when I don't get greeted like I want to get greeted, or I don't sing the songs that I want to sing, or, or somebody hurt my feelings, that I'm going to sulk and pout about it. When the reality of it is that Jesus said that that the one who is greatest in the kingdom of God is not the first, the last. He's not the one who is, who is being served. He's the one who is the servant of all. He humbly took on the form of a servant. But then thirdly, in his incarnation, he gladly became like us so that he could save us. This phrase that he says after taking on the form of a servant, these these. These six short words are just rich in, in theology, being born in the likeness of men. Paul continues his description of the downward descent of Jesus Christ by giving us a very short statement on the incarnation of Jesus. And in those words, by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and those six short words are deep, deep theological truth. It was said best by John in John 1.18 when he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson has my favorite passage when it comes to, to, to John 1.18, my favorite translation of that. Eugene Peterson said, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He became like us. But why did Jesus take on human flesh? Why was it necessary as part of God's plan that His Son would become one of us? Why was it necessary for Jesus to accomplish redemption that He had to take on our human form? And it was because the Father's plan of redemption required that Jesus would fully experience our humanity, know our temptation, and understand our weakness so that He could fully overcome our weakness and our sin. The Hebrews writer tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. The Hebrews writer is saying that, that you don't have a God who is, who is separated from your problems. You don't have a God who is somehow or another distant to your pain. You don't have a God who can't sympathize with your struggle with sin. 
You don't have a God who, who, who lacks understanding of what temptation feels like. You have a God who has experienced every temptation that you have ever faced and every temptation that you will ever face and did so without sinning and claiming victory over sin. And so because of that, He's not distant from you. He is near. And today, you can draw near to Him with confidence and you don't find judgment from a God who doesn't understand you. You find grace from a God who understands everything that you are going through and has defeated it. The Bible tells us that He became like us so that He could save us. But not only do we see the willing degradation of Christ, but secondly, we see the humble submission of Christ in verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest example of humility and Sacrifice and putting others first was displayed by Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Paul continues this dissension all the way down to the very lowest possible human existence. He not only came and left the glories of heaven to take on a robe of flesh and become a servant, but he went all the way to the lowest of lows by dying a death on our behalf And not only a death, but the most ignoble death imaginable, death on a cross. The Bible tells us that he was fully obedient to the Father's plan. Christ's humility was on complete and full display as he willingly submitted to the Father's plan of redemption. And it's amazing because when you do a a parallel study of what Jesus Christ has done versus what Adam did, we see that when Adam was given the opportunity to glorify God by completing the Father's plan, he failed. And yet in every way that Adam failed, Christ showed obedient submission. When Adam desired to be God and failed, Christ gave up his godness in order to become man. Where Adam wanted to exalt himself, Christ emptied himself. Where Adam arrogantly rejected God's plan in order to forge his own path, Christ willingly submitted his life to the Father's plan no matter the cost. And where Adam's sinful decision brought curse on the world, Christ's obedience took the curse from the world. Not only did Jesus fully obey the Father's plan by completely, fully keeping the law, but He also took that to the greatest extreme possible by dying on the cross. You see, if Jesus had only come to obey the law, if Jesus had only come in order to keep all the commandments, then He would be a great moral example, but He wouldn't be a sufficient Savior. Because if He had come and just demonstrated for us that it was entirely possible For a human being to completely fulfill the law and keep the commandments of God, you and I would not sing about the great salvation of Jesus Christ. We would feel the great humiliation of not being able to be like Him. The Bible says it wasn't just enough for Him to fully earn the Father's favor by complete obedience to the righteousness of the law. The Bible tells us that He had to die on the cross in order to pay the price of the sin that you and I have committed. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and so all are under the same death sentence. 
and that our sins have separated us from God. They've created a chasm that no matter how many good works you and I could do, we cannot overcome our sin problem. And so in order to bridge that gap, someone has to die in our place. And the only one who can die in our place is someone who was fully righteous. And the only one who was fully righteous was Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross to pay sin's price and to be fully and completely obedient to the Father's plan. You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And you remember when the Bible tells us that, that He was praying and, and He was in such agony as He was praying that He was sweating drops of blood and, and yet He continued to pray over and over and over again, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from Me, then do so, but not, your, not my will, but your will be done. You remember that? And many people think that when Jesus was praying that, he was, he was praying because he was thinking about the great painful agony physically that he was about to endure on the, endure on the cross. And in, in his humanity, that he didn't want to go and die. He didn't want to endure that kind of agony. But the reality of it is, is that Jesus wasn't sweating drops of blood because he was afraid to be nailed to a cross. He was sweating drops of blood because when he was nailed to the cross, he was about to endure the full wrath of your sin and my sin. And for the first time in his life, he would know what it meant to be separated from perfect fellowship from his father as the father would turn his face away from his son because he could not look on the sin of mankind. And yet Jesus said in the midst of all that, not my will be done, but your will be done. He was fully obedient to the Father's plan. Not only that, but in being fully obedient to the Father's plan, He faced the scorn, He took on our shame, and He bore our sin. Paul says that Christ didn't just die in our place. He didn't just become obedient to the point of death. Paul adds this caveat, even death on a cross. He died in the most excruciating and humility, humiliating death ever invented. Crucifixion is the most brutal form of execution ever. It was so horrendous that it was illegal for Roman citizens to be executed in that way. And Jews believed that anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed. In some places in the Roman world, it was even forbidden to speak of crucifixion because of the humiliating nature of it. The victims of crucifixion were usually stripped bare and fully exposed to all who were around. They were impaled on a cross and lifted up so that their shame and their punishment were visible to all throughout their time of suffering. And it was done so in order to inflict the greatest amount of pain for the longest amount of time possible. Victims on the cross were usually subject to shame and we know that the religious leaders taunted Jesus when He was on the cross and said, if you're the Son of God, bring yourself down from there. The Bible tells us that even the thief who was next to Him insulted Him and that Roman soldiers would take glee underneath His cross by taunting Him and adding insult to injury. And so church, I want you to see there hanging the almighty Son of God, the high Prince of Heaven, broken and bleeding, impaled on a tree, enduring the shame, taking on the scorn, and ultimately bearing our sin. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that in that moment God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. 
That on the cross, God placed the penalty of your sin and my sin and killed his son. And that Jesus bore the sins that you committed and the shame that you deserve, all so that he could open up a way of salvation for you when there was no other way. This morning I was listening to one of Chris Tomlin's songs in which he, Jesus, Son of God, in which he says, You took our sin, you bore our shame, you rose to life, you defeated the grave, and a love like this the world has never known. Therefore, on the altar of our praise, let there be no higher name than Jesus, Son of God. You laid down your perfect life, you are the sacrifice, Jesus, Son of God. Church, if I could ask you to do anything this morning, I would ask you to look to the cross and see the humble Christ perfectly submitted to the Father's plan to accomplish your salvation. And I would ask you today, trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Him as your Lord and Savior before, trust in Jesus Christ because there He is and on that cross, He is bearing your sin, He is taking on your shame, and He is bearing the scorn on your behalf. But Paul doesn't just leave us there. He, he brings us back up from the pit to the glorious exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. The Bible says in verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul makes this transition by using the word therefore. And in doing so, he's telling us that what is about to come off of his pen is connected to what we previously read about this humble, humiliating sacrifice on Christ's part because Jesus Christ willingly condescended to come to earth to become one of us. And because he was perfectly obedient to the Father's plan to save us, God has exalted Jesus Christ to the most prominent position in the universe. The Bible says that he has an exalted name above all names. That Jesus Christ has a name which exceeds every other name. What is that name? Well, some people think from looking in the context that in verse 11 when it says Jesus Christ is Lord, that, that it's the name Jesus, that, that Jesus is the name that is above all names. The name Jesus was a common first century moniker. It was a common name. There was nothing outstanding about the name of Jesus then. And many people in that day would not have seen the name Jesus as being a name that was preeminent. So what is the name? Well, I believe it's what people confess that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord. The word Lord means supreme authority, supreme ruler. It means that He is the sovereign ruler and that He alone has sovereign rule over all things. Now certainly in his, in his Godhead and in His deity, the Son of God has always been the sovereign Lord of the universe. But what Paul is telling us here is that because Jesus Christ humbled Himself, emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming and being born in the likeness of man and being humbled by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross, that because Jesus Christ has done all that and accomplished God's perfect plan of redemption that God has bestowed upon him throughout the world that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the world which God had created but had been subjected to sin and brokenness and futility for centuries 
until the Son of God released it from its bondage by His sacrifice, that now that world is to call Jesus Christ King of kings and Lord of lords. He has a name which is above all name, and that is that He is the Lord. The Bible tells us that all will one day bow and confess His Lordship. All. That there's coming a day when every knee should bow. Throughout the sphere of creation, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That every knee in heaven will bow. That every knee of every human being on this planet will bow. And that even Satan and the demons themselves will one day bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The, knee, the bowed knee is a sign of humble submission. And it's an acknowledgement that the one before you is worthy of more honor than you. It's exactly what Paul calls us in verses 3 and 4 to, to do for one another. To count others more significant than ourselves. And what Paul is painting for here is an eschatological picture of a future day when Jesus returns. And that when he returns, every knee of every person on this planet and every knee of every agent of creation will bow and confess what creation already knows, that Jesus Christ alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. And because Jesus is supreme, it is actually true that every knee will bow. And there are millions right now who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Some do not bow to Jesus because they do not know of Him. The Bible tells us, or the missiologists tell us, that, that there are still probably some 4 billion people on our planet that, that have net, not yet known the name of Jesus Christ. They can't bow the knee because they, they don't know the truth of who He is. But there's another group of people that don't bow the knee, and those are those who have heard but refuse to bow because they're not willing to give up the sovereign rule of their own lives. There are people even in this room today who've heard sermon after sermon after sermon about the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that Jesus Christ demonstrated that by dying on the cross, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But there are people that are still here today that have not bowed the knee and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah, you've walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and checked some religious boxes. But the reality of it is, is that if you examine your heart, there's only room in your heart for one sovereign, for one ruler. And it's either you or it's Jesus Christ. And until you bow your knee and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords, you will never be what God has called you to be. And you will never know the glory of the gospel. And you will never know the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to confess this confession and to submit your heart and life to Jesus Christ. It's the mind of Jesus Christ that changes us from sinful, selfish rebels to transformed disciples of Jesus. And as Paul shows us in the mind of Christ, we not only see His willing degradation to become one of us and His humble submission to secure salvation for us, but we see His glorious exaltation as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so what do we do with that? Well, this brings us to our point of application today. In light 
of the selfless example of Jesus Christ. In light of all that He has done for us, the reality is that you and I can no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who bled and died on our behalf. In light of all that Paul has told us today, to have the mind of Christ means that we understand that we do not exist for ourselves, but that we exist to live for the one who lived and died and bled on our behalf. So my prayer for you this morning is that you would know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you do, then that you would pursue the mind of Jesus Christ. That you would say, Jesus, because you so willingly submitted yourself to the Father's plan, that you humbly condescended to come and take on the form of a servant, to come in my place, to, to earn perfect righteousness on my behalf and to die on the cross for my sin, that I would be willing to bow my knee before you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And because you showed that example to me, I will show that example to others as well. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as David comes to prepare us for our time of invitation? My main question for you today is simply this. Do you know that you know that you've surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ? In light of that passage of Scripture and seeing what Jesus Christ has done for you, to see that Jesus willingly took on your sin, bore your shame, died on the cross in your place, and rose again to defeat sin, death, and the grave. In light of all of that, how would you leave here today without knowing Him as your Lord and Savior? In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to do so. We'll give you an opportunity to come down here and say, Pastor Matt, I just need to give my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to come today because you need to pray and you just need to say, God, I need to have your mind. I, I want to be a person who's filled with the mind of Jesus Christ. And, and maybe you just need to come and pray that this morning. Maybe you need to come for some other reason. But if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. So we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel today. In just a moment, if you would come and meet with one of our decision counselors and hear about how you can trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do so. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would bring the dead to life, that you would call your people to yourself this morning, God, that Holy Spirit, you would change our hearts today. God, that you would give us the mind of Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing and respond as the Lord leads you this morning.